Well, good evening. Uh, we are, I know we're, uh, some of you are itching to dive into Isaiah. I can see it all over, yeah. And, uh, and there's a reason, because Isaiah is a very rich and deep um, uh, book, or uh, I guess I, say, I should say collection of the Lord's words to us, because indeed it is um, the word of the Lord. Um, tonight, um, I, I don't want to disappoint we're only going to get through verse one. Verse one. Verse one. Now, the, let me back up. And, and the reason for that is not because we're going to dig so deep into that verse. Yes, we're going to dig a little bit in that verse. But we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time uh, in kind of an introduction to the book of Isaiah. And the reason for that is that um, it is... Not unlike a lot of other books of prophecy, um, in that it is multifaceted. And in a very real way, we need to approach it um, in a different manner than we typically do um, a lot of the scripture. And that is, it is not set up in a linear fashion. Um, our our Western propensities uh, say everything should be in order, everything should be logical, everything should uh, be sequential, and that's how we learn. And um, Isaiah is not that way. And so we're gonna I'm gonna unpack that a little bit for us tonight. So we're not gonna be actually looking so much at specific scriptures. We will some. But um, I, I, I'm hoping that you will indulge me in giving kind of a general view of Isaiah, kind of setting up some ground rules as, as to how we will approach this book. Um, uh, first of all, let's look at verse 1, okay? You can, you can dial in there and camp there all night pretty much, um, we see that uh, this, this, um, this I, I'm going to call it the book. It, indeed, it is called that in a lot of our, our texts, the book of Isaiah. It is, uh, first and foremost, the, the intention of Isaiah to communicate a vision. Now, um, that vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. We know that to be the southern kingdom after the kingdom divided, uh, after the, the reign of King Solomon, um, the, the northern tribes separated themselves from, from the southern tribes. And, and uh, so we, this is uh, written to the southern tribe of Judah and to the city of Jerusalem during the reigns of King Uzziah Ahaz, Jotham, and Hezekiah. And it's, it's interesting, we're going to discover a little later that when we get into uh, looking at a timeline, um, that there is a fifth king in which Isaiah's um, lifetime spanned, uh, a fifth king in the, the uh, southern kingdom. 
but he doesn't mention him specifically. And um, there's some uh, there's some traditional ideas within the Jewish community that that uh, will explain that to some degree for us. Now, um, Isaiah doesn't claim to write a book of history. This is not like reading First or Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. It's it's not a history book. He doesn't claim to to write a book of poetry like the Psalms. He doesn't claim to write a book of wisdom like Proverbs. He doesn't even claim to write a book of prophecy. Um, With that said, we will find in Isaiah all of those types of pieces of literature. Um, It is a very artful book in that it includes the plethora of of, uh, forms. And it is... um, it is unique in that way. And it's that perspective that uh, we will come to Isaiah. In fact, I would say apart from that perspective, uh, we won't uh, really begin to understand Isaiah. Uh, scholars tend to insist on uh, the unity of, of Isaiah to uh, establish its credibility and they look for chronology in other words um, uh, things starting at one point and going to another and so on and so forth Um, but that's not what we find in the book of Isaiah it's all over the place in terms of uh, we will take it chapter by chapter verse by verse but but we won't be as a result uh, going from this point of time to this point of time. It's important to understand that we will, we will start here and then we'll jump back here and then we'll jump forward and so forth. Um, and I'll do my best to, to um, give us an orientation of, of the chronology or the time uh, when we get there. Uh, as a result, we're not going to also experience logical sequence in in the scripture in in the book of Isaiah um, some scholars would say that there is also a need for a consistence consistency in writing style in order to establish a sense of unity within the text and um, Isaiah is I, I, unique in that it carries multiple styles. Some scholars believe that there's more than one author. Um, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more later, but, but uh, we're going to approach it as it has been approached traditionally uh, throughout the ages, as indeed from the pen or the hand of one author. Um, It's, it's no wonder that Isaiah, as a result, is a pretty controversial book in, in the, the plethora of uh, biblical literature. It's not the only controversial book 
<laughs> we know that there's plenty more, but Isaiah is, in, in terms of, of uh, the scholarly approach to it, it is, it is uh, a book that is filled with controversy, particularly in, in regard to authorship. Um, uh, and it divides, quite honestly, it divides along the lines of liberal theologians and conservative theologians. Um, and we're going to plant ourselves on the conservative end of things. It comes down, I think, to understanding this word in the first, first verse, vision. What is a vision? Um, that word, actually, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew is hazan, and it means, it means a, um, a, a sight or a picture, but a mental sight or picture. Um, it is a, could be a, called a dream or a revelation. But the question becomes, how in the world do you then communicate a vision? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, I guess we kind of have to stop and think about how, how do we communicate, say, dreams that we have. How many of you dream regularly? Okay. Do you then remember your dreams? Sometimes? Off and on, maybe? Um, I dream... But I can't remember a thing that I dream. I know that I dreamed, but I, I, I can't begin to recall it. Unless, unless it is very unique. And I, there have been times in my life where I've dreamed a dream and it sticks with me. And I identify indeed a, a meaning to that dream. And... Um, I can remember one in particular that that I experienced probably um, all of 20, probably 20, 22 years ago. And um, it had to do with a, a, uh, uh, a relationship between a church leader, or between two church leaders. And... It was very, very graphic and unique, but it was very, very difficult to explain. It was difficult to uh, give reference to. And in, in some aspects, I think uh, we can begin to understand the difficulty that Isaiah has in communicating the vision that he has. Now... There's 66 chapters here. He did a pretty good job, I would say. But the reality is that it is, it is filled with um, uh, things that may feel, again, if we look at it simply, simply in a linear sort of way, it may feel disconnected. Um, he, he moves from one subject to another. He may, he, he, he uses uh, imagery here that he doesn't use here, and it is uh, it. We have to uh, allow him that space to do that. Um, even when, 
even when you are speaking about your dream, uh, those of you who remember your dreams and you take the time to try to tell somebody about them, this happens regularly in my home. Um, my wife dreams a lot and she remembers her dreams and she processes her dreams. And so I get to listen to, to what she, she uh, dreams. And the reality is that even as she is speaking, she is processing what she experienced and trying to translate that into uh, language or metaphors that, that, that both accurately or reasonably accurately portray what she experienced and that I can understand. And you can see the wheels turning. And I'm pretty certain that that's the way it is with a lot of us. Um, we, we, even as we think through it, there's, there's flashbacks of, of, of what we experienced and we are processing as we go. Um, so that's, again, what, some of what we'll experience in Isaiah. Um, on, the, on the one hand, it may seem like he's a, he's a news reporter. And he's, he's documenting events. On the other hand, he may be fleshing out an idea that, that is, is full of colorful imagery, uh, metaphors, analogies, similes, um, that, that he is attempting to connect his vision uh, to our, uh, communicate it to us. Um, he uses poetry. I think one of the reasons um, many of us like Isaiah so much is because it is very poetic. In fact, I think if we would, if we would uh, uh, take a, a poll of our favorite passages in Isaiah, we would discover that many of them are poetic in nature. And so Isaiah does use that, that tool as well. Um, Again, timelines blur. Sometimes uh, this is one of the one of the concerns that um, uh, contemporary literary scholars are are that raise in that they they look at the last uh, twenty six books of of Isaiah as being. He writes it as a first-hand account, but it's about events that took place after his, after he died. And scholars don't know what to do with that. Um, um, the the thought process there is present tense prophecy, and and uh, so that is that is some of what we will see as well. Um, Isaiah needs to be read and interpreted as a whole, not as bits and pieces, not parses here and there. And that's, again, one of the challenges with modern literary criticism. I'm not suggesting that literary criticism is, is wrong, but the conclusions that it draws many times are, are drawn from the idea of of cutting things up into pieces, into words and phrases, and, and calculating how they land. And 
they lose sight of the whole message. And so as we work through Isaiah, we need to keep in view what is the whole vision that he is uh, uh, attempting to, to um, lay out for us. Um, now, having said that, that uh, Isaiah is now not linear, we've got that right. We, having said that it is uh, full of imagery, that Isaiah also pulls out um, a tool called logic. In fact, here in the first chapter, he uses this language, come now, let us reason together. And so he also uses that. Um, and on some levels, that may feel like it's, okay, uh, that, that makes sense to me. So therefore, I should draw that same sense of reason for the rest of the book. And yet, it doesn't always work that way. So um, now... Isaiah is also the master of metaphor. Who knows what a metaphor is? What is a metaphor? It's it's one thing likened to another, right? Um, and um, so so Isaiah uses the tool of metaphor over and over and over. Um, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just going to list a few. Um, Judah is likened to God's beloved vineyard. It's like a vineyard in, in chapter 5. Egypt is likened to a bankrupt empire uh, it, uh, likened to stubs of a smoking firebrand. Um, rebellious leaders in Judah are pulling sin like a cart in, in chapter 5. Um, God is shaving with a hired razor in using Assyria as an instrument of judgment in chapter 7. Um, sin... Uh, that leaves a bed too short and a covering too narrow in chapter 28. What's that sound like? Short seating a bed, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the promise of the desert blooming as a rose in chapter 35. Um, again, that, that use of metaphor happens over and over. Um, then those metaphors are often complemented by comparisons um, and contrasts. Um, so he will contrast sin and grace. He will contrast trust and rebellion. He'll contrast judgment and blessing. Um, and and so, so as we as we look through and move through Isaiah. All of these, again, all of these tools are going to be at work, and it's going to require us to unleash our imagination just a little bit. Um, 
we have to move beyond our logic and allow our our imagination to run. And and honestly, I think that's a beautiful thing. It 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 creates for us, I think, some freedom in the spirit to to experience God in some new ways. Now, um, you've heard um, in the past, perhaps, that the medium is the message. Have you ever heard that phrase? No? Um, um, okay, so the medium is the message. What in the world does that mean? Um, it means that the 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 tool used to communicate the message is the message itself. Jesus is a good, um, good uh, characterization of that. Jesus himself is the message of salvation. Does that make sense? Um, and, and we see some of that happening here as well. Um, Isaiah, uh, we read in chapter six, um, he, the the experience of his call to ministry, and he goes through he goes through this this uh, very profound experience of encountering the holy Almighty God, and at the same time experiencing um, the awareness of his own filthiness. And then he experiences the purification process that God delivers to him. Well, that, that experience for Isaiah um, is also the message that God is bringing forward. And I can say that in many ways, it's the same thing for us as we approach um, uh, digging into Isaiah, we're going to need to encounter God in a similar way in order for us to experience the fullness of the message. Um, uh, to say that uh, perhaps a little more clearly, in order for us to really understand, for us to really apprehend the message of Isaiah, we are going to have to deal with the fact that we are encountering a holy, unmistakably holy God. And that we ourselves will become aware of the sin that's resident in our lives. And we ourselves will then need to come before the Lord and, and seek to be purified of that. Uh, and what that purification means for each one of us will be different, okay? But it is a powerful thing. Most likely, if we are really walking in the Spirit as we, as we encounter this Scripture, we are going to experience coming to the end of ourselves in some ways. And that really is the point of purification. Um, we're going to have to open our, uh, ourselves to the reality of judgment. Um, there's a lot of judgment in the book of Isaiah. But 
but it is also balanced with a lot of grace. And so the juxtaposition of judgment and grace, how does that work in our lives? Um, I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons we as believers can be so nonchalant about our faith and about our worship is that we don't really totally get how desperately wicked we are. And we don't totally get what extreme sacrifice was made on our behalf. In many respects, I think coming to terms with that is I think, I, I think it's reasonable to say that coming to terms with that reality is part of the experience of being immersed in the Spirit. Because um, we, we speak of the baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament. And, and what, we, what, uh, what gets spun off of that so much is the idea that if I'm baptized in the Spirit, I'm able to do much greater things than I could have otherwise apart from the Spirit, right? Um, and that is true. But how does that happen? That happens in many respects, when we come to terms with the end of ourselves. The Apostle Paul speaks about the old nature and the new nature. He, he's, he's so comfortable in speaking about it as, as saying, take off the old nature and put on the new nature, right? For many of us, it's not quite that easy, <laughs> It's coming to terms with the fact that there really is no good thing within me. And that is the beginning point at which God then is able to pour out his spirit upon us. The reason it's called baptism is because baptism is that symbol of going under, being taken to death, and being brought out of the water, resurrected a brand new person. And, and, and so um, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is that if for us to get the full effect of Isaiah, expect that the Lord may take us to that, those kinds of places. This is not going to simply be an academic process. Um, we're gonna encounter God's sovereignty we're going to encounter God's holiness, his judgment, and his grace. Um, and again, to dissect Isaiah, Isaiah and leave the text in pieces will, fail to, will cause us to fail to see the unity of the whole message. Um, uh, now, there's lots of theology in this book as well. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people really enjoy Isaiah because it's, it's thick with theology. What is theology? Well, theology is the study of God, the study of theos, right? And so uh, what it unpacks for us is the character of God. Who is God? 
what, uh, what does he do? What does, how does he act? So we're going to encounter the holiness of God. In fact, I think the holiness of God is one of Isaiah's favorite, favorite themes throughout the book. Uh, again, we see it in, a, in chapter 6 when the, the, the cherubim and the seraphim are, are shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy. And the, the door posts and the thresholds shake and the temple is filled with smoke. And, and we experience this, this um, picture of holiness that is unlike what we typically think of holy. We tend to, th- I, I know that I, I say we, perhaps I'm wrong in doing saying that. But my sense is a lot of us think of holiness as that which is untouchable, right? That which is pristine, untouchable. Yes, the thresholds are shook and the temple is filled with smoke, but what happens in that, in that moment there in Isaiah 6? Isaiah recognizes again his, his desperate need. And then what happens? One of those holy creatures comes and touches him with a coal off of the altar. And it's not unlike Jesus, who is holy, and yet what does he do when the leper comes to him? He reaches out and touches the leper. Have you, how many of you have seen the uh, video series Matthew? Few of us? Yeah. It is a, it's an amazing depiction of the life of Jesus. And one of the scenes in there is Jesus encountering the, the, uh, the leper whom he reaches out and touches. But in the movie, what happens is he doesn't just reach out and touch him, touch him. He grabs a hold of him and, and embraces him and they end up laughing together. And does that make the holy Jesus unholy? I mean, after all, the leper isn't untouchable, right? Does that make holy Jesus unholy? Not at all. It's quite the opposite. Because in God's holiness, he chooses to reach and touch us. That's the wonder of the gospel. God is proactive, and so we see that here also in Isaiah. Uh, the justice of God is, is another uh, major theme throughout um, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune to rob the needy of justice and take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, that they may rob the, may rob the fatherless. Again, that, this is part of God's holiness as well, this deep sense of justice. And attached to justice is, uh, is the, 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 res, the social responsibility that God's people have for one another. Uh, that's, a, that's a curious piece uh, that I think in our day and time, we too easily push aside. And, and when we speak of 
righteousness, we again don't, don't seem to connect the dots that how we treat one another is part and parcel of that. We also are going to see the theme of the power of God, God's omnipotence. And specifically in the, in the fact that God's omnipotent power is seen in the, the putting into, the, into motion his plan for human history. Um, his use of nations, his use of nations to, to um, as, as his instruments... Of, of working his sovereign will. Um, it's it's mind-boggling to think that God is moving nations and leaders therein. I, I, it's, it, it doesn't go without notice that we are in a time of great upheaval right now. Um, is God at work in the hearts of leaders? Is God at work in the work of nations? Absolutely, yes, I believe that. And that's what we will see in Isaiah in a very, um, very uh, expressed way. Uh, he, he brings judgment against um, the ancient superpower Assyria. Um, this, and um, in chapter 14, I just want to read a few verses there. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. Again, this is the vision that Isaiah is having. This is the Lord's speaking. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all nation. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? If that doesn't make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, I don't know what will. God is sovereign, and, and we will see it in spades in, in Isaiah. We'll also see the unpacking of the wisdom of God, um, um, and that his, his actions in his sovereignty are not whimsical, they are not without a plan. They are not arbitrary. Um, we are also going to see the judgment of God. And again, I think this is as an, a, a, a full expression, if you will, of his holiness. Judgment and holiness go hand in hand. Um, he is, God cannot tolerate sin. And I think what we will find, I know what we will find in Isaiah is that that is particularly true of the sin of pride, of arrogance, especially as it contends with God's sovereignty. Um, I, I know that you have heard people say, you know, when the judgment comes, when I stand before God, I'm going to have a few words with him. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about this and that. Yeah, right. Right. But that is, what is that? That's the sin of arrogance. That's the sin of insolence in before the almighty God. 
Um, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So we have judgment as an expression of God's holiness. But we also see, and this is where the linear thinking just does not make sense for us. Because we are also going to see the expression of holiness as the grace of God. Judgment and grace, they couldn't look more different. And yet both of them are, are uh, expressions of God's holiness. And Isaiah, even though he, he expresses a great deal of judgment, he is also a prophet of hope. And in that the grace of God is always there. Um, that, is, that is part of the spirit of, of the prophecy that Isaiah brings. In that when God delivers judgment, it brings pain to him. Just like, just like a, uh, when a parent delivers discipline to their child. I know they don't believe it when you say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. But there's truth in those words, isn't there? There's absolute truth. And, and, and so we see those, that reality in it, in, at work here as well. Um, one, of, one of the works of grace it is also um, the hope of the remnant. Um, we're going to hear the prophecy of a remnant. Now, judgment is coming, but there is also the promise of the remnant. Beyond that, there is the promise of the Savior. We see, uh, we see the pictures of Jesus through, throughout Isaiah. But what do we see? We see a suffering servant, don't we? We don't see just a conquering king. We see a suffering servant. Um, neither of these promises are, are um, merited by God's people. <laughs> there is a reason why he is speaking, why Isaiah speaks of judgment. And it's because of profound disobedience. This, this grace, this mercy, this savior, the remnant, none of that is merited. Um, we are also going to see the promises of God. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, his name will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These are promises that 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 Isaiah lays out uh, for us. Uh, later on in chapter 54, we're going to hear about the glory of Zion. Chapter 56, the salvation for all people. Chapter 61, freedom for all the oppressed. Chapter 62, a new Jerusalem. <laughs> and in 65, new heavens and a new earth. And then the final chapter, 66, all nations seeing the glory of the Lord. These, these are all promises of, of God. Um, and it's interesting, 
it's important to understand that Isaiah himself clearly did not see all of these promises come true. He saw some of them come true, but not near all of them. Um, and for us, that's a word of instruction, a word of hope as well. As we look to the future and understand the promises of God um, that are yet to be fulfilled, it's a word of hope to say, yes, indeed, they will be fulfilled. And if Isaiah can believe, I can believe. Now, um, I think it's important for us to dial in what biblical prophecy really is and what it's not. Um, the word prophet is used um, throughout the scripture, but it's also used in our contemporary culture, isn't it? And, and we, have, we have, I think, some misguided ideas uh, very often of what a prophet is. Number one, a prophet does not exploit the gift of prophecy for his own gain. Um, we see some of that in our contemporary Christian culture. But a biblical prophet does not call attention to himself. It's not about him. Um, a biblical prophet speaks for God, not for themselves. It's not their opinion. It's, it's, they are speaking without exception a certified message from God. And that is why they say, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. A biblical prophet speaks a balanced word of judgment and salvation. And that's another reason why we have to look at the whole of, of Isaiah. Um, without sparing God's wrath for, for sinful humanity, judgment is not an end in itself. God's ultimate purpose in judgment is to save the sinner. So if you hear a prophet that is simply spouting gloom and doom, I know that we've seen cartoons to that effect, have we not? Um, and some of us have maybe encountered people on the street like that. If they're only spouting gloom and doom, it's not a biblical word. Because God's salvation is always attached to the word of his judgment. Um, there are um, lots of references to eschatological um, ideas and events. In other words, things that happen in the, in the future, the far future, the end of the world. Um, and it's important to note that Isaiah's range of prophecy when it comes to speaking about the future is all the way from uh, the downfall of the, the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires to the return of Israel from exile to the coming of the Messiah to the recreation of the new heaven and the new earth and then to the reign of 
peace in all creation. It's a very, very broad range, but it, from Isaiah's perspective, it's all future. Um, a biblical prophet speaks also for the purpose of edification, exhortation, and consolation. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, but, the, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And again, that's that edification, what is that? Edification is the building up. What is exhortation? The exhortation is the word of instruction or correction. And consolation is the word of grace. Now, again, um, um, there is some some discussion about whether or not where where Isaiah is the book of Isaiah is written by one person or by multiples, and a lot of that has to do with the division uh, at, uh, from chapter forty to sixty six because it looks different. Um, we are going to take um, the book of Isaiah as it is traditionally been understood through the, through the millennia uh, as having been penned by one person. Um, now, we've got a few minutes left. I want to um, take a real quick look at verse 1, the vision of Isaiah. We've already talked about vision. Um, the vision of Isaiah. Take note that the word, the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. And if we look at the tradition of naming children in, in, uh, in the scripture, there is meaning attached to every name. Um, a, a, a good, a good uh, example of that is Jacob and Esau. What does Esau mean? means Harry. Um, today, we simply say Harry, right? Um, uh, what does Esau or Jacob mean? It means heel catcher. Jacob was the one who was uh, the second one out of the womb, and his hand was on the heel of his brother. It also means supplant. In other words, someone who is... Um, who is about uh, taking the place of another. And that's exactly what happened. Jacob took the place of Esau in, in his inheritance. Now, Jesus is another good example. What does the word, the name Jesus mean? Salve it means savior, right? Yeshua, Joshua, same thing. It is, it is the word for savior, um, so, um, Isaiah's name, name means the Lord is salvation. We can say then, it's not unreasonable to say that the theme of the book is indeed that. God is salvation. Um, he's the son of Amos. Who in the world is Amos? Well, um, there are, uh, a lot of scholars believe that Amos was uh, part of the royal bloodline. And that is 
uh, one of the reasons why Isaiah has such access to kings, um, and and that's a, 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 a an important piece of that. Uh, he is the uh, the he is traditionally understood to also be the man of God mentioned in 2 Chronicles 25 uh, where King Amaziah uh, is discouraged from going into battle. And um, it's curious if that is the case that, that Amos was also a prophet of sorts speaking wisdom to the king. Now, who did Isaiah prophesy to? Well, it's written there, Judah and Jerusalem, and the leaders definitely of the southern kingdom. So when did Isaiah prophesy? During the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's all written in verse 1. Now, I've got a, a few slides I want to show to you. Um, here we see... Um, the fact that at the end of Solomon's reign, um, the, the kingdom of Israel split in two. The northern kingdoms decided they wanted to follow one of Solomon's, um, uh, uh, I guess you would call him one of, their, one of his officers. And, and the, the southern kingdom, Judah, was content to follow one of Solomon's sons. They split up, and at that point, we have two kingdoms. Now, um, the next slide, we see the kings of the southern kingdom. Um, we uh, look down on the, the bottom of the, the left list, and we see Uzziah. He is the first king mentioned uh, in the list uh, and he is the king mentioned in chapter 6 when Isaiah receives his call to ministry. Then we see Jotham, um, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, uh, note that Uzziah is a good king, Jotham is a good king, Ahaz is definitely a bad king. And what makes a bad king? Well, in the scripture, it is it is simply going contrary to the the direction of the Lord. In specific, it is bringing in idol worship. Hezekiah is a good king. Um, uh, and then uh, it's interesting. Um, take a look at the next slide. Um, uh, well, I'm sorry. Go back to the, the previous one. Um, you'll see that Manasseh is there next. That's uh, Uzziah is 10, Jotham is 11, Ahaz 12, Hezekiah 13, Manasseh is 14. And Manasseh, however, is also included during Isaiah's lifetime. We're going to see that in the next couple slides. Let's go to the next slide. And we see the timeline here, this is all BC, so the the dates go backwards. Basically, um, you can see there in the middle, you see Amos, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. These guys, these prophets, were contemporaries of one another. Um, 
And let's see here. Um, Isaiah's lifetime, you note, is from 760 to 673 B.C. That's 87 years. Um, Uzziah's reign begins at Amaziah's death in 767 B.C. And Uzziah's reign ends at his death at 740 B.C. In other words, he reigned for 27 years. Isaiah's calling comes near Uzziah's death uh, when, take note, Isaiah is about 20 years old. That should say something to us. Uh, Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's uh, prophet contemporaries are Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Um, um, and he was the only prophet in the northern kingdom. Uh, during that, that time who left a written prophecy. Um, Amos was actually from the southern kingdom, from Judah, but he preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, his, his writings were during a time of relative peace. Um, Micah was from uh, Gath, which is in the southwestern part of, of Judah. Um, and he prophesied um, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, and um, Micah's messages were directed chiefly toward Jerusalem. Now, um, the northern kingdom, uh, in this slide you can see at the top right, um, you can see that uh, the northern kingdom, Israel falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC. That is during Isaiah's lifetime, during his ministry. So the northern kingdom is hauled off into exile in a, to Assyria during Isaiah's lifetime. Um, uh, let's go to the next slide. Hezekiah dies in 787 BC and Manasseh assumes the throne for the last 14 years of Isaiah's life. Um, uh, it is curious that Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, actually shared his reign with his son for about 10 years uh, before he died. Um, but Manasseh started off good, ends up really crummy, and Isaiah does not mention him. And there, I'm not exactly sure why, except to say that there is a tradition within Judaism that Manasseh executed Isaiah. So that's, that's not biblically documented, but again, it is a tradition within uh, Judaism. Now, Judah, the, the southern kingdom to which Isaiah is um, preaching, falls to Babylon 
in 586 BC. And you can see that that is far to the right um, over there. Judah falls to Babylon on the extreme right end um, there. That is 89 years after Isaiah dies. So um, just to sum all this up, Isaiah is a book of history. It's a book of poetry. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of prophecy, all of the above. And it is the unfolding of a vision the whole of the experience is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, understanding Isaiah will happen best if we um, don't insist on consistency of writing style, of chronology, of logical sequential thinking. Um, Isaiah is the master of metaphor, and his metaphors are complemented by um, creative use of comparisons throughout. Um, the message and the medium are, are both, they're different in substance, but they are uh, inseparable in the process of communicating this message. Um, we will uncover new understandings of God's holiness his justice, his power, his wisdom, judgment, his promise, and best of all, his grace as we study through Isaiah. Now, I know that that may have felt, wow, that's a lot to take in. Um, we're going to dig into chapter one next week. Um, my hope is to be able to take at least one chapter at a time. We will not... Um, dig in as deep as we did in the Psalms, just so you know. It's going to be more of a, more of a, a look of the whole and, and then uh, inspecting the whole together. Um, so I anticipate a, good, a very good time of study, and I hope you do too. Let's pray and we'll be, we'll be gone. Lord, thank you for this time of study together and the opportunity to, to unfold the, the uh, wonders that we find in Isaiah. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed do the good work in us just as you did in Isaiah in bringing us, Lord, to the end of ourselves that we might be purified and, and um, immersed in your spirit as we, as we study because we really want to hear and understand and live in response to the message that we hear and see in Isaiah. Thank you for your grace in that. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.